Turn with me then to Genesis chapter 41. Sorry, it's, it's 42 that we'll be focusing on, but we will we'll pick up a few verses at the tail end of chapter 41. Let's pray. Father God, if we believed in our heart of hearts that you were a good God. If we were entirely convinced of your good purposes for us, then we would hang on your every word. We would long to learn the things that you teach and long to obey. Lord, we pray that you would come by your spirit And make your word precious to us. That your word would become the light and the foundation of our lives. Lord, come and be with us this evening as we look once more at these wonderful passages from the book of Genesis. Amen. When we left him last week, Joseph had just been promoted uh, to a position, really, I think it's prime minister that he is. Um, Pharaoh is, is the, the ruler, a uh, bit like a, the queen, perhaps, in our, in our monarchy. But Pharaoh has delegated responsibility for the whole of the running of Egypt to Joseph. And we learn more about his promotion in those final verses of chapter 41. There was a public installation ceremony, and we can read about it there. He was dressed in fine linen robes. A gold chain was put round his neck, and he was given a a chariot, uh, second only to Pharaoh's. I guess that's the company car. He had chauffeurs to drive him throughout Egypt, we're told, uh, and people to to make sure that the whole population understood who he was and how important he was. Of all the things that Pharaoh gave him, the the smallest thing is probably the most significant. He gave him his signet ring. Uh, And that really was his um, stamp of approval. If you had the signet ring of the ruler, you could could send a a dispatch with a a wax seal on it with a stamp of Pharaoh on it. So anything that, that Joseph sent out, any commands or instructions that he sent out, carried the same weight as if they had been sent by Pharaoh himself. All that to say, Joseph has been given more power than you or I can even begin to imagine. With great power comes great responsibility. If you're at all familiar with Peter Parker, uh, the Spider-Man alter ego, you'll have come across this piece of comic strip wisdom before. Comic strip or not, I I think it's a critical insight. It was Lord Acton in a letter to Bishop Crichton in 1887 who said, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. What about Joseph then? 
He's become here the second most powerful man in the known world. How is he going to cope with this power that he's been given? Uh, will he be responsible? Or will he be corrupted like so many others before him and since? When we read about Joseph in office, there's no sense that he's been corrupted by the vast power at his disposal. One Genesis commentator, Walter Brueggemann, says that Joseph is the model for those who rule. This narrative affirms that power is a good thing. It celebrates the capacity to make tough decisions, to face crisis boldly, and to practice prudence so that the empire can be fed. This is public power for the public good. And there's one thing in particular I want you to notice about Joseph's rule, because it struck me. He went out from Pharaoh's presence, we're told, and he traveled throughout Egypt. Now we can imagine him during the, do you remember there's been seven years of plenty, so seven years of bumper crops in Egypt. And I'm imagining Joseph going out constantly at work, keeping himself busy during these seven years. He's going out inspecting the agriculture in the land, making sure that they are getting the best crop possible. He's ensuring that the landowners are maximizing their yields. He's appointing commissioners in every city who are, who are gathering in the surplus, taxing the people, if you like, so that there will be food when the famine finally comes. He's overseeing the building of storehouses to make sure that this valuable grain doesn't come to harm and isn't wasted. We have a picture here of Joseph being active and dynamic in his work, intimately involved with his people. I was trying to think of an analogy for Joseph's job here that might make sense in our local political structures. And I wondered if Joseph was a bit like, you know, the Secretary of State from Northern Ireland. Every few years, an appointment's made in Westminster, a name's announced, and the tour of duty begins. And normally what happens is that these people arrive in quite a flurry of publicity. Um, they'll go and visit schools, they'll visit farms, they'll visit industrial sites, just depending on the political fashion of the time. Now, we're a cynical bunch over here, aren't we? Whenever a new Secretary of State arrives, we're not thinking, oh, this is great. They're going to be working with us. They're... No, we're sort of thinking, goodness, who's he? Who does she think she is? Do they have our best interests at heart? Or are they only here to, to work for their own political gain? And the reality is that we've probably been right in some cases to be skeptical some of, some of the secretaries of state we've known have served us very well, but others, there's been a sense that they weren't really all that interested, at least not interested enough to, to really get to know Ulster people and Ulster issues. Well, Joseph was a wonderful secretary of state for Egypt. Twice the narrator tells us, because he wants to stress this to us, Joseph traveled throughout Egypt. The power didn't go to his head. It didn't make him a, a bureaucrat sitting uh, distant from the, the people in the community. Instead, he put himself at the disposal and service of the people to whom God had called him. Joseph walked among his people. 
It seems to me that this is another one of those moments where Joseph stands as a type of Jesus Christ, where his spirit-filled living foreshadows uh, the life that was lived by our Savior. Think of Jesus. He too had great power, all the power of God and of heaven at his disposal. And yet he walked among us. In the first chapter of his gospel, John speaks of the time when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as Peterson memorably renders it in the message, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. If we're to be followers of Jesus Christ, we need to to follow Jesus and mirror him in this regard. We need to incarnate or put flesh on the life of God. We need to embody Christ for the world around us to see. This is something I probably talk about quite a lot. And if you hear a minister talking about something quite a lot, take it for granted that it's something that he himself struggles with. He's preaching to himself. Friends, as long as we restrict the life of Christ to our our quiet times and our quiet places, our churches and our home groups, we're going to miss so much, so much of the life that God has called us to. Think of that outward walking the streets life that Jesus lived. And and contrast that with, with spiritual leaders Uh, those whom we look up to in our churches. Friends, if we are to be Christ, then we need to rediscover this, this walking and being in the neighborhood. In the final verses of chapter 41, we're given a a bit of an insight into Joseph's family life. And I want to pay attention here for just one moment before we move to chapter 42. We've been told in verse 45 that Pharaoh gave Joseph an Egyptian name. Now that was common practice. When a foreigner was brought into the Egyptian court, you you would give them a foreign name. But it's changing everything here for Joseph. Joseph is no longer a Hebrew slave. Joseph is now an Egyptian prime minister. And Pharaoh gives him not only an Egyptian name, but an Egyptian wife, Asenath. And her dad is Potipharah, the priest of On. Now, that probably doesn't mean an awful lot to you, and it didn't mean an awful lot to me. On is a, a city seven miles northwest of Cairo. And the Greeks later called it Heliopolis, the city of the sun. All that we know about On is that the high priest of On was the leader of all the wise men in Egypt. So when Joseph is given the daughter of of the priest of On, he's marrying into one of the elite families of Egypt. That's all we need to say about that. I don't know, is this raising any concerns in your mind? That Joseph, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is here taking an Egyptian name, Uh, marrying an Egyptian woman. 
And actually, this is only one more aspect of Joseph's completely comprehensive accommodation to the Egyptian way of life. He's living in Egypt. As far as we know, he's wearing Egyptian clothes. He's working for an Egyptian boss. And now he's, he's marrying into an Egyptian family. Is he right to do that? Is that okay for, for Joseph to do? Well, to help us think about Joseph's situation, I, I thought a, a useful thing would be to take another godly man who ended up living in a pagan culture. Take Daniel living in Nebuchadnezzar's regime. While he was in Egypt, Joseph, like Daniel and his friends, accommodated himself in his appearance, but not in his principles to the culture in which he lived. Both of them, we could say, were, were in the world in which they lived, but not of it, to use that, that distinction that many of us have grown up with. Both men were willing to wear pagan clothes, to take pagan names, to work in pagan regimes, but neither of them is willing to do anything that compromises their belief and their walk with God. Daniel, if you remember, he refused to break the dietary requirements uh, that, that would have infringed God's law. And he refused to stop praying when a command came out from Nebuchadnezzar to do that. Well, Joseph, similarly, he doesn't violate at any point that we know of any of the law that God has placed on his heart. So maybe we're beginning to be more comfortable with this, this sense of Egyptianness that Joseph takes on. And we see something here in verses 51 and 52 of Joseph's ongoing commitment to God and his covenant people. We see it in the names that he gives his children. They might be born in Egypt. It may be to an Egyptian mother. But Joseph gives them Hebrew names. And of course, in that world, the name of a child meant everything. Uh, everything about the child and who it was hoped they would become. These names both speak of Joseph's reliance on God. He calls the first Manasseh. He recognizes that God's helped him to forget all the heartache of his earlier life. He calls the second Ephraim. He recognizes that his success in Egypt is all a gift of God. Do you see now how Joseph lives among these pagan Egyptian people? Outwardly he looks like them, but inwardly he's an entirely different man. Now think about this for a moment. Whenever we try to work out how we might live in our culture, is it not true that it's easier to focus on the outward differences? To think of a few badges that make us still appear like God's people. While inwardly our hearts might be exactly the same as the people around us who don't know Christ. Friends, forget, let's forget about the outward stuff. Let's instead focus on having inward lives that are radically different. That have absolutely nothing in common with the people around us. Because we've been so radically transformed by the life of Christ in us. I think outward differences 
will, will sometimes manifest themselves and sometimes not in that case. But that's not important. People around us will still see that we're different. Not because we wear weird clothes or have weird haircuts. or They'll see that we're different because we're radically different in our person and in our being. I think that's what you would have discovered if you'd have been in the company of Joseph and of Daniel and of other men who have lived this life of God. In the remaining verses of chapter 41, the very last verses there, the narrator impresses on us the seriousness of this famine. And I just want you to notice that. There's a famine in, throughout all of Egypt and we're told that this famine spreads throughout all the earth. So Joseph's role in this, don't think of Joseph here as a big fish in a small pond. He's not. Joseph has risen under God to a place where he's, he's very possibly the second most powerful man in the world. And I think we need to bear that in mind when we, when we observe Joseph and how he acts. And, and in a sense, uh, there's another lovely foreshadowing of Jesus here. In this moment, the salvation of the world depends on one descendant of Abraham. And of course, that, that's something that we know is at the heart of the gospel. Um, Joseph saves the people of his day from hunger by providing them with grain. Jesus saves the people of his and every day by saving them from their sins, by being the bread of life to them, by being the water of life to them. Jesus, and only Jesus, is the final fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. We've spent most of our time, or certainly a good chunk of it there, looking backwards into chapter 41 and let's move very quickly through chapter 42 there's a transition here as we go from 41 into 42 from a macro scale to a micro in the last verses of chapter 41 it's all about a famine throughout the world the whole world and all of a sudden we land in chapter 42 and the focus is on one family there's another transition here because the focus moves from being on, on Joseph as it has been. For the next few chapters, the, the main characters are actually Joseph's brothers. Joseph will still play a lead role. He'll be pulling a lot of the strings. But our focus and, and where we need to keep our eye is on Joseph's brothers to see what's going on in their lives. In particular, as we're in, reintroduced to them, we're wondering what kind of men have they become? Are they still the same kind of men who sold their brother into slavery all those years ago? Or have they changed? In the opening verses, we're given a behind-the-scenes look into Jacob's family. Um, the famine is beginning to bite. They've been rationing the food, we can imagine it, for, for months. But it's all to no avail because they're, they're clearly going to run out very soon. And Jacob says to his sons, this is the elderly Jacob now speaking to grown men, maybe in their 40s. And he says to them, why are you just looking at each other? Go down there to Egypt. We know they've got grain. Go 
and bring us food so that our families don't starve. The sons make the journey, but only 10 of them go. And that's because Jacob doesn't want Benjamin, his youngest, to go the way of his favorite Joseph, who had gone missing 20 years ago. It was a journey of two or three weeks, probably, for these 10 men and for their, their beasts of burden who were going to carry home the grain that they were bringing. And remember now, these men are going down a well-worn route. Just as there is a motorway that runs between Belfast and Dublin, so there was a well-worn route that ran from Canaan to Egypt used by traders. The same route that Joseph, as a 17-year-old, had used 20 years ago. I wonder, did his brothers spare a thought for him and what they had done to him all that time ago? I wonder on that long, slow trek, did they have a, a moment to think about Joseph? Well, after a couple of weeks of a journey, the 10 men and their, their caravan of animals arrive in Egypt. Uh, they waited in line with all the people from all over who were waiting to get food there. And then they were brought before the official responsible for selling the grain. And as if it was the most natural thing in the world, they fall down on their faces before him. Did you get that? Joseph's brothers bowing down before him. This is an incredible moment, the moment where the dreams that God gave Joseph in his childhood begin to become true. Do you remember the dream, don't you? Joseph dreamed of a time when he and his brothers were gathering in corn and their sheaves of corn bowed down before his and the brothers responded saying, wise up. Do you think we're going to bow down before you? Well, here, in this moment, in a grain depot in Egypt, the dream is coming true. And Joseph's the only one who knows it. I think for Joseph, this must have been an incredible moment of affirmation that all those years, God really has been with him. That he really has guided every step of the way. That, that decades later, things that had been foretold are coming true. Now, this is one of those moments in the narrative where I wonder if, if you find it maybe hard to believe. Particularly the idea that Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him. How would we not recognize our own flesh and blood? Well, think about that for just a moment. It's 20 years. They last saw Joseph when he was 17 and he's now 37. I know I'm going to have changed quite a lot from 17 to 37. I had hair when I was 17 and I'll not have much left in a couple of years' time. Think of all that's happened to him. Potiphar's slave. Prisoner in a probably not very plush Egyptian prison. More recently, he spent seven years in the service of Pharaoh. All those experiences would make a dramatic change in any man. 
Whenever they last saw him, his brothers, Joseph had a beard or the beginnings of a beard just like them. He was a, a, a crusty Semitic shepherd just like them, wearing a, a, a bathrobe probably that didn't smell too good. But now he's dressed in the style of the Egyptian aristocracy. His head and his sh- beard are shaved daily. All of those reasons probably contributed to why his brothers didn't recognize it, but it seems to me there's one overwhelming reason why his brothers didn't recognize Joseph. They thought he was dead. When you think, he's, when you think your brother's dead, you don't expect to, to bump into him. And they couldn't possibly have imagined that the 17-year-old who was dragged off in front of them in shackles behind a, a camel of an Ishmaelite trader, that he could possibly stand before them, second most powerful man in the world. How could they? So I, I think it, it probably actually makes sense in the long run that Joseph's brothers here don't recognize him. I want to spend our last few minutes this evening thinking about what we've seen so far of Joseph's treatment of his brothers. Did it seem harsh to you? Although it seems unkind at first, on reflection it will turn out to be that Joseph proceeds here every step of the way with his brother's best interests at heart. Although he's going to conceal his identity from them, he's going to put them through some very, very hard times. We're going to see soon enough that he has their well-being and the well-being of his entire family always in mind. From here on in, we're going to see Joseph skillfully constructing a pattern of events that's going to discipline his brothers, that's going to punish them and test them all for their good and for the transforming of their character. And it seems to me, as we look at this chapter and try to discern what God's word to us might be, I think as we look at how Joseph deals with his brothers, we're going to get a bit of an insight into how God deals with us. When we sin, God punishes God's word teaches, you see, that he punishes those whom he loves. He disciplines us and he tests us because he wants in the end to transform us. He wants in the end that we are different and better than we are now. He wants in the end to make us like Christ. Whenever Joseph begins to discipline his brothers, he begins by accusing them of spying. Now, that was a reasonable enough accusation. The Egyptian superpower of its day was on the constant lookout for spies, and particularly at this stage when they were the breadbasket for the entire world. So Joseph's brothers refute the claim, but in doing that, they begin to tell Joseph a bit about his family. In verse 13, Joseph learns things. I don't know if you noticed this, but listen to this from Joseph's perspective. He discovers that his elderly father is still alive. He couldn't have been sure of that. He discovers that Benjamin, 
his younger brother, the brother of his, born of his mother, is, is with his father in Canaan. And Joseph discovers too that his brothers assume that he's dead. As Joseph learns this precious information, we can only imagine that something is stirred in Joseph and that he begins uh, to, to have a, a, a hope in his heart that one day he can be back with his brothers and with his father, his whole family around him once more. So in verse 14, he presents them with a command that's going to make it possible at least to see Benjamin. If you're really who you say you are, then bring my brother to me, or your brother to me, I should say. One of you can go and get him, and the rest of you will stay here as hostages. And he puts them in prison for three days to think it over. On the third day, Joseph seems to have mellowed out a wee bit. He says, only one of you needs stay. The rest of you can go and take food to your starving families, but you must bring the younger brother to me. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall of that prison cell where the brothers spent their three days in captivity. What was the conversation there? Was God beginning to prick their consciences? As far as we know, these men had lived 20 years without another thought of Joseph. No sense of remorse for a terrible thing that they had done to their brother. Was God beginning to open their lives up? I believe that he was. Look at what they're recorded as having, saying, having said after three days in verse 21. Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Friends, these men are in the first steps to repentance. And often this is the way that repentance comes about in our lives. God permits some circumstances to unsettle our consciences. Something happens today that opens up wounds, that flags up the sins of yesterday or 20 years ago in the case of these brothers. The thing that we have tried to forget, that we have tried to brush under the carpet, that we have tried to, to forget about entirely, is brought back to the surface as the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin. The brothers don't know it, but Joseph is understanding everything that they're saying He's heard their recognition of their guilt. He's heard Reuben trying to defend himself. And we read in verse 24 that he turned from them and began to weep. Friends, no, make no mistake about it. Joseph loves his brothers. If he disciplines them and he tests them, it'll not be out of spite. It will be for their good. It's because he loves them and wants the best for them. 
And we have said already this evening that Joseph's dealings with his brothers illustrate God's gracious dealings with us. I wonder, do we believe that? Do we believe that for God finally to do us good in the short run, he may have to to deal harshly or severely with us? God's word is clear about this, that God punishes those whom he loves. I wonder if you're here this evening and you have a sense that you're living under a punishment from God. Don't see that as as the end of God's love for you. Don't see that as his turning his back on you. See it instead as a, a prompting of his spirit. A desire to draw him, draw you back to him. And as, as we come to a close here, we see that Joseph lays a test for his brothers as they leave Egypt. On their release from prison, he has Simeon, the eldest brother, but Reuben, bound before their eyes and dragged off to prison. And I'm sure their hearts were heavy as they loaded their animals for their home journey. But all the while, as I say, Joseph's testing a plan to hatch them. He's asked his servants to give the brothers their grain, but also the money that they paid for their grain and and to return it in each bag. Why does he do that? Is it an act of generosity? No brother of mine is going to pay for grain that they bring from Egypt. Well, yes, I think it is. I think he is giving rather than selling grain to his brothers. Is it a test? Yes, I think it's a test too. You see, whenever these men go home and when they open their bags and when they find their money, they're going to be terrified. We're told that in the account. They're going to realize that they're going to have to return to Egypt looking as though they've stolen the grain. Because they've got the money still with them. No payment appears to have changed hands. To all who look on, it's going to look as if these brothers have paid, have refused to pay for the grain. So they're going to go back with Benjamin. That's going to be a dangerous thing to do in the extreme. But not to go back because of their fear. That's going to leave Simeon, their brother, trapped in a prison in Egypt. They're being tested. And the interesting thing here is that they know that it's God who's testing them at this point. Look at verse 28. Their hearts sank. They turned to each other and said, what is this that God has done to us? How are they going to respond to Joseph's test? Are they still the same men as before who will leave a brother in the lurch at the drop of a hat if it suits them? Or are they being changed? We'll have to wait and we'll see next time. But let's leave it here for this evening. In this chapter we've seen quite a strange thing, I think. And that's Joseph dealing harshly with his brothers that he might open them to a new experience of grace. 
I wonder, have you experienced a little of God's severe mercies in your life? That time when he has done something to stop you in your tracks. That time when he's maybe taken away the things that you held dear to test you. To see if he is dearer to you than these things. Have you ever known a time when God has disciplined you and tested you? That he might draw you closer and reconcile you to him. Have you ever been humbled by the living God? Shown all your sin and all your squalor that you might see the beauty of Jesus as Savior. If you were sick this evening, friends, to whom would you go? You would find yourself a doctor and with a few here to choose from this evening. You'd find yourself a doctor and without delay you would go to that doctor. If you had toothache, you would seek out a dentist and you would go to them. If you were having eye trouble, you'd seek out an optician. What if you're a sinner? What if the Holy Spirit of God makes it as plain as day to you that you're a sinful person? To whom would you go? You'd go to a saviour. A sinner needs a saviour. Friends, as we're confronted with the reality of our sin and our guilt, Jesus is the one to whom we go. Let us pray. Father God, you have taught us this evening as we have looked into your word and seen Joseph's dealings with his brothers. You've taught us just a little of how you must deal with us from time to time. Lord, we pray that when those times come, when you discipline us, when you punish us, when you test us. Lord, we pray that we would humbly respond, that we would see that all of this is born only out of your unending love for us. Lord, help us to trust in you and trust in your good plans for us always. Lord, when you discipline us, Give us by your spirit the grace to turn to you, obedient once more, restored once more to fellowship with you. Lord, if there's someone here this evening who's never yet once responded to the conviction of your Holy Spirit, someone who's recognized for the first time the full extent of their sin and their separation from you, Lord, we ask, that you would move in that brother's or that sister's heart and draw them into your family, even this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name.